Well, if you, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Galatians chapter 1. And um, our study will be centered around verses 6 through 9. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. If you would stand and let's read the word together. This is the word of God. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Please be seated. A little bit of a background before I get into our verses for this morning. Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 were sent out by the church uh, for their first missionary journey. And as they went out preaching the gospel, the most incredible, amazing thing happened. The most wonderful thing uh, happened where revival broke out. A mass of people heard the gospel and they were saved. God greatly blessed the missionary efforts of Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 13, there is a record of what happened when they went to Antioch and Pisidia. They went on a Sabbath day to the synagogue, and they began to preach the gospel. It was apostolic preaching, meaning they preached the word. They preached the gospel, and they referred to the Old Testament to verify and validate that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was the promised one whom God sent. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and he rose again, proving that he was God's son. And they used the Old Testament to support and validate this gospel message. Well, there was a great stir occurred in that city. A week later, Luke says that the whole town turned up to hear the Apostle Paul. This time, it was not in the synagogue. It was in the center of the city. So there were, the majority were Gentiles. They were not Jews to hear Paul's message. Paul preached the word of the Lord again, Acts 13.44, and revival broke out. People repented of their sins. They received the message with faith. And uh, uh, the men and women of the city uh, repented and renounced their transgressions and turned to Jesus for their salvation. And the whole region uh, reverberated with the gospel message because they who were saved began to preach the gospel to others and the whole region were, were shaken with this gospel truth. Uh, the disciples were filled with joy, it says. 
and filled with the Holy Spirit. And many churches were planted in that region in southern Galatia. Now, uh, this always happens. After revival comes a counter-revival. Opposition, resistance, persecution, infiltration, uh, subversion, corruption of the gospel uh, within the ranks. Uh, Richard Lovelace in his book, The Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, wrote, Every advance of the kingdom of God has occasioned an explosion of conflict and contention. Advances in the progress of the kingdom of God always occasion counter-movements on the powers of darkness. So this is why Paul wrote this letter. He is responding to a a very deadly attack on part of the enemy. Uh, They're attacking the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's first epistle. So it's kind of ironic. It's my fault. You know, I preached 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, and then I go and preach from Paul's first letter. Uh, You know, 2 Timothy was written uh, late 60s, 65, 67 A.D., Uh, Here, this is 49, 48 A.D. This is the first epistle, and it's all a defense of the gospel. So the first thing that happened after the gospel is preached, the revival breaks out, gospel is attacked. And um, it is a far more dangerous form of attack because it's not persecution from outside the church. It is a friendly fire. There is nothing more demoralizing when... There is attack from within. Right. It's an internal battle, internal conflict. There is false teaching coming from professing believers, wolves in sheep's clothing. Peter warned of this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. False prophets arose among the people, Just as there will be false teachers among you, there will be. It's not a matter of if, a matter of when. When within the church, false teachers will arise, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is impending. So in the first century, right after the gospel is proclaimed to Gentiles, Christianity is confronted with its first heresy. And This was not a minor issue. All of Christianity was at stake. Uh, If this uh, error took root in the church, if uh, Paul didn't see this as false teaching, and if he didn't vehemently oppose it, then uh, literally the gospel would have been lost. The gospel would have been lost. Now, who were these false teachers, and what was their message? Um, No need to turn there. Their position is outlined in Acts 15. They are known popularly as the Judaizers. And this debate was so ferocious 
And they had the audacity to go against Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And they would not listen to them. They would not be placated by the, the reasoning from the scriptures from the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. So they went to Jerusalem and they wanted clarification from the apostles and elders in the capital of Christianity in the city of Jerusalem. So this is true for church history. You know, heresy precedes clarity in orthodoxy. So heresy um, encourages us, almost demands us, makes us study the Bible. Without heresy, you and I would be less clear about the gospel and the word of God. So in God's sovereignty, in a, in a, in a God's sovereign way, heresy is a gift to the church. Right? God uses it for the good. We're not for false teaching because we're, I'm so lazy and you're lazy too. We're so lazy we wouldn't study the Bible as we ought. Heresy forces us to dot the I's and cross the T's. So Judaizers presented their arguments before the apostles and elders uh, in Jerusalem, and they said, uh, unless you are circumcised, Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, there were part of the Pharisees, they are they're members of the Pharisees who have been, who profess Christ now, and their message was, again in verse 5 of Acts 15, it is necessary to circumcise them and have them keep the law of Moses. Right. So uh, that was their thing. If, if Gentile believers want to really uh, become full Christians and grow as Christians, they must be circumcised as a sign of the Old Covenant and uh, commit to keep all the commands of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. This was not a small matter. This is not uh, splitting theological hairs right, with little spiritual or practical implications. Now, a lot of things that, now, some of the things we learned in seminary really it is splitting theological hairs. Really have very little relevance, you know, very little practical implications on life and ministry. And uh, as soon as you graduate, you forget most of them because they're only important to theologians or those who like to fight for the Bible. This is not in that category. This concerns the heart of the gospel. This concerns where you and I will spend eternity that is at stake where you and I land on this issue. Paul has concluded, the, the Jerusalem council concluded that this is not the gospel and this occurred after the writing of the uh, book of Galatians. Uh, so th this predates Acts 15, most likely. Paul has already concluded that this gospel of the Judaizers is not the gospel of Christ. In Galatians 1, you look at verse 7, and in verse 6, he calls it a heteros gospel. In verse 7, he calls it that they're distorting the gospel of Christ. Now, as you look at verse 7, I want you to note that article, the gospel. There is just one gospel message. There is not, it's not a gospel. Gospel, there's not one of many. It's not a pick and choose, the one that which you most prefer. The gospel is fixed, 
It has a narrow definition. It has content. The gospel contains explicit truth statements. The gospel is not an experience. The gospel is not emotions. Gospel is is truths. It's declarations from God. Paul is saying here that the content of the gospel message is not up for grabs. It is not up to the preacher. He doesn't have the license or the authority to adjust the gospel uh, according to his whims or the demands of the audience. The gospel message is not to be tampered with. We We didn't create the gospel. We don't adjust the gospel. We don't vote on the gospel and have a buffet mentality on which parts we want to keep and which parts we want to take out. There is only one gospel, and this gospel is the gospel of Christ. He gave it unblemished, unchanged, unadulterated to the apostles. Apostles wrote it down, and it was given to the church. And church, throughout church history, like men like Polycarp, Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, Augustine, Wycliffe, Jan Hus, Tyndale, Luther, Whitfield, Edwards, Spurgeon, Sproul, MacArthur, Piper, so on and so on, has passed down to us. And our job is to receive that gospel, guard it with our lives, and pass it on, preach it without compromise. It's a fixed truth. Gospel is not to be changed. But from day one, many have attempted to corrupt the gospel, distort it, pervert it, twist it, change it, make it more palatable, to either the irreligious or the religious. There are a thousand and one ways, I suppose, ways to adulterate the gospel, to compromise the gospel. I mean, one way is to redefine the gospel. Right? Change, same words, but change the definition. So the Mormons use the name Jesus, but the definition of Jesus is thoroughly opposed, thoroughly contrary to the definition of Jesus in the Bible. Roman Catholics use the word grace. They're saved by grace. But what they mean by grace is different, wholly different than what the Bible means about grace. So they redefine terminology. Very subtle, but still destructive. It is, it is false because it's a different message with the same packaging. Another way to, to twist the gospel is by taking things away. Right? Oftentimes, we don't, notice things that are missing. And so they take away things of the Bible, and many believers in their naivete don't discern what is missing. They take away things like preaching on the holiness of God, preaching on sin, preaching on repentance, preaching of Christ as Lord and Savior. And in that way, they appease the the carnal desires of the masses Uh, They scratch the itching ears of people and they give them a message that is more palatable, more acceptable to this postmodern world. Now, the Judaizers were not about uh, taking things away. They were not about cheap grace. They were not seeker sensitive. They were 
opposed to seekers, right? They were, they didn't try to accommodate their message to the, to the masses. They wanted to restrict the message from the masses. They didn't take away from the gospel. Their distortion was adding to the gospel. These men were perverting the gospel by, by addition. They want to add the works of the law of Moses to the gospel. So if you want to be a Christian, and if you want to continue as a Christian, then these commands are absolute for you to stay and continue as a believer of Jesus Christ. Um, This was not a, a minor issue. It was a major issue again. Paul said in Galatians 5, uh, stand firm against this yoke of slavery with which they're trying to burden you. Mark my words. And remember we learned last week that Paul, this letter is unique because Paul is penning it himself. He's not using a scribe. So he's writing with his own hands and he says, mark my words I, Paul, tell you, Galatians 5.2, if you let yourselves be circumcised, even if you, if you capitulate even to this one point of the law, you are, you are obligated to obey all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, all of the laws. Therefore, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Christ, the gospel, grace, will be of no value if you... Give in, cave in to this one single point. Galatians 2.21 If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If we could save ourselves or maintain our salvation through works, and you add to the gospel in this way, what you are doing is saying that Christ died for nothing. Now this word um, distort in verse 7, uh, I'm not going to even try to attempt this Greek word. Forget it. It's too early in the morning. It means, you know, pervert. It's the metaphorical meaning to uh, change. But the literal rendering is to reverse. Right? To reverse the order. Uh, Jerome observed that this word carried the literal meaning of setting behind what is in the front and putting in front what is behind. It's cart before the horse, right? the tail wagging the dog. What these Judaizers are doing was they were reversing the order of the gospel. They were putting sanctification ahead of justification. Right? This so Paul is saying the gospel is not just fixed. It's not just truth and set and fixed. The order of the gospel is vital. Right? You, can't, you must not redefine the gospel. You can't take away from the gospel. You can't add to the gospel. And you can't change the order. If you change the order, you're perverting the gospel. What they were doing is your righteous works causes God to grant you grace to be saved and to remain saved. This is the, the, the you know, this is the more, more subtle attack. This is the more sinister attack. 
You know, when a, when a thief comes into your house, right? John 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How does a thief enter your house? He doesn't ring your doorbell, right? He doesn't knock on your front door. How does he come in? He comes in through your side window that you left open overnight. He comes into the back door. Now, these days, it was a back door, but, you know, other places of the world, they have back doors. They, they come into the back door. Uh, this is the Judaizers not coming directly, but they're flanking. They're going to the side and going to the back. That's why Romans is a defense of the gospel in a, in a direct way. Galatians, Paul is defending um, the implications of the gospel in terms of sanctification. Because if you undermine sanctification, if we're sanctified by works, after being saved by grace through faith, you are still distorting the gospel and perverting it. So Galatians is a defense of the implications of the gospel. Um, This is, uh, I mean, so very important. This is so uh, pervasive of, of Christianity today. I think all Christians would say that we're saved by grace through faith alone. But there is a lot of confusion of how we are to persevere as Christians. How we have assurance of salvation as a Christian. How we grow as Christians. And there is a lot of teaching out there and a lot of teaching in our hearts, in my own heart, that though we are saved by faith, that after our salvation it is our work that we are sanctified by works. It has been said that justification is what God does for you, and sanctification is what you do for God. That is not true. That is false. Justification is what God does for you, and sanctification is what God does for you. All of it is a gift from God by grace to you and I, to believers. We can't partition all justification. It is one whole unit in God's sovereign grace. He gives salvation to those who who he wills. And those he calls, like Lazarus, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. Justification is God's gift to, to us. It's what he does. He does human mean, He does use human means, right? So when he justified us, we did hear the gospel. We didn't fall asleep, right? We did hear the gospel and we thought about it. We prayed, we confessed, we repented. We were involved in that salvation process, but now through the scriptures, we declare that what, I didn't save myself. I didn't justify myself. He did it all. God saved me. Yes, I was involved in the process, but I was dead in trespass. I was spiritually dead. Salvation is of the Lord. He did it all. Well, same thing for sanctification. He uses human means. You are listening right now to the word of God. You came to church, right? Hopefully you will read the Bible this week and pray this week and go to care group this week. You are involved in that sanctification process. But just like salvation, we say, all I did was trust in Christ. 
abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit. All I did was abide, which is a, a Johannine metaphor for believing, for trusting, for depending upon Christ. And that faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is not our work. It is a gift that he gave to us by grace. So, so though I did all these things, read all these books, memorized verses, when I was on my knees praying, God did it all. God sanctified me. And on that day when I am glorified, God will glorify me. That is the message of the gospel, and that is the order of the gospel. And to get that order wrong is to distort, to twist, to pervert the gospel of God's grace. We have to get the order right. I mean, the Old Testament, Exodus, they were redeemed. They were set free from slavery, and then they were given Leviticus. And then they were given Exodus 19, the law of Moses. The law came after redemption. God saved Israel, and then God gave them the law. Likewise, salvation comes before sanctification, and it is all by faith. And I'm going to try to, to, to preach this verse. You know, almost every, if not every sermon I give, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live as a Christian. I live by works. I live by duty. I live by rituals, observances. No, I live by faith. Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith from first to last. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now let me just read to you three quotes that I believe are important and validate what, what I am saying this morning. First of all, is by Pastor John MacArthur, to change the message of grace is to stifle and eventually asphyxiate the church. Paul wrote in Titus 1, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. These Judaizers, they must be silenced because they're teaching things that are not true. Carter says, continues, the greatest enemies of the church are not those who openly contradict the Bible and denounce Christ. No, these Judaizers of the first century and these Judaizers of the 21st century, these Judaizers in Galatia and Judaizers in Orange County, they are biblical. They use scripture. They use the word of God. And yet, they subtly undermine and distort his true gospel with a system of works-based righteousness. Michael Horton in his book, Christless Christianity, wrote, Where we land on these issues is perhaps the most significant factor in how we approach our faith and practice it and communicate it to the world if not only the unregenerate, but the regenerate are always dependent at every moment on the free grace of God disclosed in the gospel, then nothing can raise those who are spiritually dead or continually give life to Christ's flock, but the spirit working to the gospel. Listen to this. When this happens, not just once, but every time we encounter the gospel afresh, the Spirit progressively transforms us into Christ's image. Start with Christ, that is, the gospel. Start with the gospel, and you get sanctification as part of the package. 
begin with Christ and you move on to something else based on works, then you lose both. John Brown in his commentary wrote, these Judaizers suppose that they were not materially altering the gospel. They were merely just adding a small observance of the Mosaic law. But this addition was in reality a most important alteration, indeed a complete perversion. It is a most hazardous thing to tamper with the gospel of Christ. It must neither be abridged nor enlarged. It cannot admit of either without being injured irreparably. No greater curse can befall a Christian church than to have teachers who by their confused and erroneous statements trouble the minds of believers and attempt to pervert the gospel of Christ. Let me add a side comment here. These Judaizers, the first century and 21st century, they're sincere. You know, their desire is they want to balance the gospel. The gospel is so radical. Such an incredible message of grace, of love, and mercy that they fear people might, believers will, think they have license to sin. And so they will stop coming to church, right? They'll go clubbing and smoking and drinking and doing drugs. They'll rob from their employers, rob from their parents, right? They'll get C's and D's in school, right? And so in an attempt, a genuine attempt to balance the gospel and to help believers from being, living sinful lives, they add the, God, add, the, add the law in a way to mitigate from its excesses. But in so doing, um, they are perverting and distorting the gospel. Right, the road to hell is paid with what? Good intentions. Good intention. They want people to obey the law. Right? Obey scripture. Good intention. But the end, it's a dead end. Right? The end is spiritual suicide. The end is destroying the gospel. The end, only thing that's waiting for you is despair. In their attempt to balance the gospel, they have destroyed it. So this is what was happening. Paul understood this better than I. I can never understand it. So when he heard of what was going on in the churches at Galatia, he wrote this letter in response. And again, he heard the news. He couldn't wait for a scribe. His heart was, was just filled with indignation and sorrow. So he gets a pen to parchment, and he begins writing and it's a unique letter because in all his letters, after the salutation, he has a portion of the letter where he has he expresses his affections towards them. He talks about his prayers for the Philippians, the Colossians, the Ephesians. He talks about them and gives gre- further greetings, not here in Galatians. Soon as he's done with the salutation, he says, I am astonished, right? I am dismayed. I am perplexed. I am confused. I am shocked. It is like you received a divorce notice from your wife. Your marriage is great. You love her and she loves you. And you get this notice that she was filing for divorce. And your heart is, why? 
What's going on? I am shocked. I don't understand. The Galatian believers served divorce papers to Christ. So Paul is responding on behalf of Christ. I don't get it. I am astonished. I am shocked. The Greek word, I can pronounce this, is taumatso. I'm astounded, surprised, marveled, amazed. Three reasons for his astonishment. First of all, because they're deserting him who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ. He was astounded by their desertion. It's a military term. It's a, it's a changing places. So metaphorically, it means to uh, side with the enemy. Desert your, your, your company, your, your, your country, your, your loyalties, and side with the enemy. And this is particular. Paul is saying, you are deserting him. Right. So when we pervert the gospel, and follow a perverted gospel, a distorted, confused gospel. We're not uh, denying a doctrine. We're not changing a theological point. We're not changing our, our doctrinal positions. We're not changing denominations or deserting a person or, or, or people. Paul is saying, you are deserting God. You are forsaking God. You're turning away from God Himself. So this is um, this is where we need so much help, right? That we need to know, you know, heresy from, you know, just differences in interpretation or even false teaching. We need to understand when when we are deserting God and when, as children of God, we disagree. Right? So. You're not deserting God if you have a different view on spiritual gifts. If you believe in continuity of spiritual gifts, you're still a Christian if you profess the gospel of Christ. If you believe a different view of of, uh, men's and women's roles, you have a different interpretation about church government, you believe it should be led by congregation or led by elders or led by a presbytery, it's an in-house debate. If you disagree about literal interpretation of... uh, Genesis 1 and 2 or Revelation 20 is still an in-house debate if you agree with the gospel. So when we talk about that, those level of issues, we talk as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a family, family debate. I mean, we stand in our position, but we, we love one another. If we deny, if you pervert, you go against the gospel of Christ, it's not an in-house debate. Why? Because you're deserting God. You have forsaken God. You have walked away from God. You cannot uh, follow a different gospel and claim to be a child of God. Claim to be a member of the Christ church. Because you have deserted him. And, then, and this is you, is, is, you know, second person singular. And there's a sense that these Judaizers are ultimately responsible. And they're the blackest darkness of hell is reserved for these teachers. Uh, that, that's why not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. So the worst kind of presumptuousness in the world is to presume that you are a teacher of the Word of God, where no one affirms you, right? No one affirms, validates, you know, uh, uh, supports you. A church doesn't get behind you, and you believe you are a teacher. You start teaching others, right? That's a presumptuous sin, and, you, and on top of that, you teach. Heresy concerning the gospel. The blackest darkness of hell is reserved for you. But 
even for believers, though you are, are victims, you are willing victims. So he says, you are deserting him. You are led by these Judaizers, but you are responsible. So he's, he's astonished. He's shocked. Because uh, they are rejecting God. And they are rejecting um, God's grace. Look at verse 7. Deserting whom? Or is it verse 6? Deserting whom? Who called you in the grace of Christ? God called you in grace. Remember last week, there's a knock at the door and you don't want to answer because you think it's the landlord demanding payment for your debt? No. What you're rejecting is you're rejecting grace. The knock at the door is Jesus Christ. He wants to forgive you of all your debts. He wants to relieve you from the bondage of the law. This awful burden of trying to be perfectly righteous before a holy God. It is a fool's errand. It's impossible. That's what Christ came to do to save you. And yet you're rejecting grace? This is uh, shocking to Paul. Second reason is because uh, it's so quick. Right? So quick. Little or no resistance. Right, Paul's like, I just left yesterday. You know, I just left you guys a few weeks ago. Right? Don't you want like, to stand for the gospel a little bit? Don't you want to hold to grace you know, for a little bit? But soon as these Judaizers come in and preach law, okay, right? You just turn your back on God and you follow legalism. Uh, I can't be too hard on these Galatians. I can't because this is my heart. Right, right now, right, I'm full of grace. In about an hour and a half, maybe three hours, we play flag football, right? And somebody has passed interference against me, I'll be full of legalism, right? You too, right now, you're full of grace. During snack time, someone takes that last croissant, right? You'll be full of indignation and anger and judgmentalism, right? If you feel with self-righteousness, I deserve that croissant, not that five-year-old kid, right? <laughs> Who's already got three croissants in his other pocket. Right? I mean, we lose the gospel. I mean, here's Jonah. We studied that a few weeks ago. He's in the belly of the fish, and I'm sure he's praying like whispering. Right? He's eking it out. Salvation is of the Lord. And he's spewed out by that fish. A few days later, he, he's angry at God. He wants to die. He's, where is my leaf umbrella, Right? And he's upset at God and he's judging God and, and not moved and melted by the compassion of God and he wants to die. All right, this is not an aberrant phenomenon. This is not those medical mysteries that you see on Discovery Channel. Like, oh, you know, there's a you know, rare case, right? And what's the, what's the solution? No, this is all of us. This is you and I. And this is not a past case. This is a current malady that affects all of us where moment by moment, our hearts, our default state is legalism. We are so quick to turn, turn away from grace and resort to self-justification, to self-reliance, to boast of our own works and own righteousness, to control our own Christian lives and our own future by works rather than trusting in Christ. We must not be too hard on the Galatians because Paul is preaching to us and thirdly, 
what they are turning to is no gospel at all. No gospel. Uh, look at verse, verse 6. Turning to a different gospel. The Greek word is heteros. And then not that there is another one. is alus. So alus is another of the same kind. Heteros is another of a whole different kind. Right, so Paul is saying the gospel you're turning to is a heteros gospel. It's not a gospel at all. It's not good news at all. Uh, you know, so ladies, those of you who are married, let's say on that day when your husband proposed to you and he came to you with a ring and on that ring was a cubic zirconia, right? And, and you said to him, what is this? And he said, well, this is just another kind of a diamond, right? It's still a rock. Visually, you can't tell if it's diamond or cubic zirconia. And actually, there is a thing called the, the genuine cubic zirconia. I guess there's a fake, it's true, there's a fake cubic zirconia, and there's a real one. I didn't research this to buy it from my wife. I just, I, I just saw an ad, right? But he said, this is a genuine cubic zirconia, and it's another kind of rock. If he said that to you, what would you do? What, what would happen? Right? He would still be single, right? <laughs> right? You would not accept that. You would say, no, this is not another kind of a diamond. Right? This is not a diamond at all. Well, same thing with the gospel. Right? The gospel of gospel plus works is not just, oh, their denomination. Right? It's their culture. You know, it's their, you know, they're just different kind of people. They're personalities are different. It's another, but we're all just Christians. No, it's a heteros gospel and it is not gospel. It is not good news. It's the old bad news. It is awful news where you'll be judged by your works. So God says, you want to stand justified before me through your works? Then you have to be perfect just as I am perfect. Matthew 5, 48. All have fall short and fall short of the glory of God. It's impossible. That's not good news. That's horrible news. That's disaster. It's not another kind. It is no gospel at all. So Paul is astonished for those three reasons. And so he gives two reasons why they must turn back. He's pleading with them. The deserting is present tense, continual. So he believes that this this uh, apostasy hasn't been confirmed, hasn't been cemented yet. There is still hope for them to repent and turn away. So he, he appeals to them two reasons why they must repent and turn back. First of all, their motivation is to trouble you. Right? Verse 7, there are some who trouble you. Don't, don't, be, uh, don't be deceived. Right? They, you think they're trying to help you? They're trying to serve you? You think they care for you? No, you know, read Matthew 23 this week. All about the Pharisees. How they seat themselves in the, Moses' seat. How they are whitewashed tombs. They clean the outside of the cup, but inwardly they're, ra- they're dirty and ravenous wolves. Right? How they all do all these things to please man for their own glory. For, the, for their own, own desire, for their own uh, sensual reasons. Paul is saying, they're not here to tr- help you. Their desire is to trouble you. Right. 
Galatians 4.17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you would make much of them. Galatians 5, 7, and 8, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Their persuasion is not from him who calls you. Right? Their persuasion is not from God. Galatians 6, 12, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, these are the men who force you to be circumcised in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Among their friends, right, their community, the Pharisee, the Jewish people, they don't want persecution. They, they, they're standing in the middle of, of Christians and Jews, and they care more about their friends, Pharisees, and, and, and uh, those who observe the law rather than God. So they don't want to be persecuted by their family and friends. So to not receive persecution, they're adding works to the Christian community. So that they can turn and tell their friends, oh, we're just another sect of Judaism. Right? They obey circumcision. They go on Sabbath. They obey the holy days. Right? They sacrifice. Don't persecute me. Don't, dis- don't separate me from the family. I'm still part of the Jewish community. We're just a different version of it. That's their motivation. Right? They're not there. They're not doing this to help you. They're doing this to trouble you, to hurt you to harm your souls eternally. And the second reason, don't fall for them, is because they are accursed men. They are under anathema. Even if we should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary, verse, verse 9, to the one you received, let him be a curse. Important for us to note that Paul brings himself under this curse, this judgment. He says the gospel is the authority, not man. Right? The gospel is authority, not who you are, where you came from. If anyone, and even an angel of God, knowing full well that Satan himself, 2 Corinthians 11, masquerades, as an angel of light. And curiously, uh, two main religions in the world owe their, uh, uh, owe their existence supposedly to an angel, right? So Islam is all about how angel Michael came and gave the uh, prophecy to Muhammad. And Mormonism is all about angel, I guess these angels are busy. Gabriel or Michael went to Joseph Smith and uh, gave him these, uh, these tablets. So they... Uh, parlay these leverage authority of angels to legitimize their their religion and paul says doesn't matter who it is or even an angel of god if anyone preaches a different gospel which is no gospel at all let him be accursed and paul you know he he means what he says because he repeats it twice doesn't matter if they're sincere doesn't matter it's a clear conscience Paul pronounces a solemn curse upon anyone who proclaims a counterfeit gospel. He uses the strongest words possible and then repeats it. It's one of the harshest statements in all of the New Testament. Paul pronounces a curse with apostolic authority. He gives them over to hopeless and eternal condemnation and destruction. This is not church discipline. This is far, far, far worse. This is eternal damnation in hell. So 
But these are the men whom you are following. They are accursed men. They are men under, under judgment. Therefore, turn. This sounds harsh. It might be difficult to accept in our postmodern, tolerant, you know, tolerant world. I don't know, but for me, I, I say yes to this anathema. I say amen to Paul. Anyone who understands the depths of their depravity, and anyone who's ever tried to obey the law, whether law in the Bible or law in your own heart, and has experienced that shame and guilt, that burden of striving to be righteous before a holy God, and was pummeled by it, was laid bare because of its impossibility, and they were struck to the core in humility because it is impossible to be righteous before a holy God through works. And they were rescued by the grace of Jesus Christ. He came down and because of his love for us, saw our helpless state. He rescued us. He delivered us and forgave us. Anyone who understands that would say yes to this pronouncement of anathema to anyone who preaches a false gospel. Because this false gospel is luring us back to slavery. Back to condemnation, back to guilt, back to shame, right? back to this old religion where it is futile and impossible. So because it is a message of grace, Paul pronounces and believers say amen to this pronouncement of anathema to anyone who would dare pervert this message of grace that Christ gave at the cost of his own life. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter your your degrees, doesn't matter your knowledge or experience, doesn't matter if you're claimed to, you have you, you saw a visit, visit from you were visited from an angel by an angel, does not matter. Right. Anyone who preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema. How do we apply this? I'm going to apply it with Christ's application. Because today is Communion Sunday. So today, we're gonna, we heard the gospel. We, 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 saw it, we saw the defense of the gospel. We saw how it is a fixed faith. The order of the gospel is fixed and important. And, and what it does for us, now we're going to experience it. We're going to see it not through preaching, but through a narrative. Not through words, but through physical elements. We're going to experience it in a powerful way. Not that preaching is not powerful, but it's just powerful in a different way. We're going to, as believers who believe in Christ, we're going to partake of these elements and we're going to see the bread that was broken. And that picture, that bread being broken, that picture points us to the story of Christ's body being broken on the cross. How he suffered, how he was tortured, how he was mistreated, And ultimately, he was crucified on our behalf. Because the bread is broken, we're able to partake of it. And Christ gives that bread to us, and he's telling us, the law will not satisfy you. The law will not feed you, give you nourishment. Don't go to to the, to the law, don't go to applications, don't go to imperatives, the commands, thinking that somehow they they will satisfy you. No, what satisfies us is Jesus Christ. It's the message, the gospel of Christ. Take it and eat. 
and then we'll take the cup, right, which is a visual picture of the spilt blood of Jesus. Jesus poured out his blood. He gave his life on our behalf. Right? He died, was our substitute, and he experienced the curse of God, experienced hell on Calvary. He was abandoned by God because of our sins. And by his blood, we are saved. There is no atonement for sin apart from shedding of blood. And our Savior's blood was shed so that you and I might be forgiven and that we might have a relationship with God. I think about that. We have a relationship with God through the gospel. It's not through our works. It's not through our righteousness. It's not through our sinlessness. Not through our obedience. It's not through how many quiet times, how many Bible verses we memorized, not through how much we prayed. We have a relationship with God through the gospel. He offers himself to us. God is the gospel, and when we trust in the gospel, we have this personal relationship with God. And that is declared in this narrative of communion. That is a story that is being told to us, the bread and the cup. So let us do that now. Let us trust in Christ as we take these elements and passively receive all that he has for us in his son. Let us pray. Lord, we do... uh, Thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for the gospel message. Or we pray that those here who are not saved, or they have been following a perverted, distorted, corrupted gospel, Lord, through the Spirit, you would grant faith and repentance. You would grant them to turn away from themselves and from reliance on the law to the grace of Jesus Christ. And there, find once and for all, Sabbath day rest, that you have prepared for your people. Lord, we pray for believers here who are still striving in the flesh to prove themselves to you that somehow through their works, they're worthy of the cross. No, Lord, would you show them how unworthy we are, utterly and completely unworthy of Christ, but we are made worthy because of your grace. So, Lord, we pray that you see fit to grant them grace to trust in you and to receive your love and to rest in the gospel of Christ. And Lord, may we guard this gospel with our, with our lives. May we guard it with the strength that you give to us through your spirit. And as we savor it now through the bread and the cup, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray.